Hello, and welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I'm Jamie Mize. Today is the fourth episode of our inaugural season, Histories, Mysteries, and True Crimes. As the title suggests, this season, we will be exploring historic mysteries and true crime stories from the past. Our fourth episode examines a fire that engulfed the Chinese city of Changsha in 1938. In 1937, the Japanese began a full-scale invasion of China. The major cities of Shanghai and Nanjing were taken and occupied by the Japanese. But in the face of continued Chinese resistance, Japanese generals made a decision to attack the interior of the country. In November 1938, Chinese nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek ordered the city of Changsha in the interior Hunan province to be torched. This decision was made as part of a larger wartime scorched earth strategy embraced by the nationalists to combat the Japanese invasion. To learn more about the fire, its impacts, and its legacies, I spoke with Dr. James Hudson. Dr. Hudson is an assistant professor of modern Chinese history at UNCP. Dr. Hudson authored an article about the Changsha fire entitled The Early War of Resistance in the Changsha YMCA 1937 to 1941 in the Journal of Chinese Military History in 2017. I encourage everyone to check it out after listening to this episode. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Hudson, for joining me today. So we are going to talk about arson in 20th century China. What is the story? Well, the story concerns uh, this great fire of 1938 that occurred in in Hunan's capital city of Changsha, uh, during World War II in China. And World War II in China is more commonly referred to uh, as the War of Resistance against Japan. Uh, this is the early stages of the war against Japan. Japan launched a full-scale invasion of the Chinese mainland in the summer of 1937 following the Marco Polo Bridge incident. And Japan, uh, in the decades up leading up to that, had been really... Uh, establishing a, a, a colonial presence in Northeast China and really wanted, wanted to win Chinese, China as a territory uh, during the war. And then, of course, um, in the yeah, December of 1937, the Japanese army entered the city of, of Nanking and famously massacred uh, many, many of the civilian populations referred to as the Rape of Nanking. And then after that massacre, um, the Japanese army made its way westward into the Chinese mainland. And this caused a a massive refugee crisis, a flight of refugees from China's eastern seaboard into the interior. And so Changsha is is an interior uh, city. And during this time, um, part of China was controlled by the nationalist leader, uh, Chiang Kai-shek. And he was the leader of the army. He was the leader of the the nationalist state at the time. Hunan was more or less under control of, of his government, by 1938, uh, the Japanese had made such progress moving into the interior that Chiang Kai-shek made a, f- a few uh, key decisions, um, employing a, a scorched earth kind of campaign. And well, one thing he did first is that he, in, in the summer of 1938, he made the decision to break the dikes of the Yellow River in North China, and they created this giant floodplain to to stall the uh, the advance of the Japanese army. 
But I mean, this was an enormously costly uh, decision for the civilian population because I think something like 800,000 people drowned. Many people were put out of their homes. You know, their whole villages were flooded. Uh, it in turn caused a massive refugee crisis. And then by the fall of 1938, uh, the Japanese army made their way <laughs> into as far as Hunan province and leaders in the city, uh, both civilian and uh, military, began, began to be worried about what was going to happen once the Japanese arrived. So I, I kind of set it up all there as <laughs> sort of a long-winded beginning, but that's the, no, that's, that's the setting. That's good. That's good. Real quickly, um, I was wondering if you could, I know you mentioned that Hunan is an interior province, but could you give our listeners that are maybe less familiar some geographic markers so that we can better situate ourselves? It's a southern province. It's a southern interior province. So there's two main river systems that dominate the main part of China. You have the Yellow River in the north and the Yangtze River in the south. And Hunan is actually south of the Yangtze River. Did it have strategic importance? Um, in, in a sense, yes, because uh, the city, Changsha, the capital, was a, was a, a river port uh, city. And that river that situated on had eventually had, it had access up through the province to to the Yangtze River and the, and the port of uh, Wuhan, which you may have heard of. Um, and Wuhan was a vital Yangtze River port. And if the Japanese could control the Yangtze River corridor, then they could virtually control all of uh, South China. And they did for a good part of the time when they were, they were in China. So much in the fact that the nationalist government, by this point, it had to flee to Chongqing, which is even further into the interior. It's far, far into the West. And the Japanese began bombing Chinese cities in the interior, like Chongqing. Because Chongqing was the capital, became the wartime capital, it was bombed relentlessly. And part of my research about the city of Changsha, not only about this fire that happened in 1938, this instance of arson that you referred to, but uh, the bombing of the city by the Japanese and the refugee crisis that ensued and the, the response by local civic organizations uh, to the crisis, organizations like the YMCA. Yeah, if you like talk more about the fire and you know. Yeah, yeah, I definitely I definitely want to hear more about the fire. Real quickly though, I wanted to um just get a little bit of clarity on So I know that you know, you've mentioned Chiang Kai-shek and so we have the nationalist government. There are also communists, right, operating yeah. as well. So is yeah. is there that kind of civil war where are we at in terms of of that struggle is everybody really focused on Japan at the moment and working together or are they at odds still with one another? Yeah. Well, it depended on, I guess who you asked at the time, but there's definitely tension between the nationalists and the communists. And from my perspective, I think the nationalists drew first blood because in 1927, Chiang Kai-shek made the decision after this campaign called the Northern Expedition, which reunited the, the country from a decade or more of warlord rule. He marched through the south, uh, finally took back control of the, of the eastern coastal area, especially around Shanghai and Nanjing. That, that's a vital economic area right there. That's why the Japanese wanted to take Nanking when they first invaded. And so once Chiang Kai-shek had control of that economic zone, he, he made this decision to purge the communists, had them arrested, imprisoned, executed. And this drove the communists underground and they fled to, to this remote mountainous region in, in, the, in the south, uh, actually very close to Hunan. Um, and Mao Zedong, the eventual leader 
of the Communist Party was actually from Hunan. But in 1937, Mao wasn't in. Mao or a great many communists weren't, weren't in Hunan. They had been forced out of the cities. Okay, so this um, it, really yeah. then is a is a struggle then between the the nationalists and the Japanese. Japanese, then. right? Okay, okay. So we've mentioned that it's it's a it's a fire. So what is set alight? I guess is how I should ask. So the the nationalist government, Chiang Kai Shek, pretty much made the decision: invasion, occupation by the Japanese of the city was imminent. That that the city should be burned to the ground as part of a scorched earth campaign, and scorched earth campaigns have been around. You know, as long as the history of warfare, going back to Greek and Roman times and, and Napoleonic Wars and Sherman's ca- campaign through the South, I believe. Sure. The the idea is that you eliminate, uh, you burn a city to the ground so that the uh, the assets of the city, the infrastructure of the city can't fall into enemy hands. But then, you know, what what do you do with the civilian population? You know, um, what, right. what happens to them? Part of the research that I did about this event just was looking at some firsthand accounts and Chinese language documents that verified the fact that there was there was sort of a coordinated sort of meeting to discuss this by the the nationalist party leadership and and generals and Chiang Kai-shek himself and and they made a decision to burn the city but i think probably after because there was a, a, a signal fire lit at this prominent pavilion, the Tianjin Pavilion. Um, it started on November 13th um, and lasted till November 18th. So oh i guess in the gosh. early yeah, and it destroyed something like eighty-five percent of the city, the city central business center, seventy percent of the urban housing stock. Some twenty thousand urban buildings were totally destroyed, much of which consisted of businesses and private residences. And this is what was really harmful to the 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 the, the legacy of the city: is that a number of ancient temples and monuments were also completely destroyed, and it left something like 200,000 people homeless. And the casualties from the fire range approximately 20,000 people. But for Chiang Kai-shek, these were all decisions that were made in the name of uh, national survival. Were people aware at the time, the the residents of the city, were they aware of you know, who made the decision? I'm not sure they were fully aware that Chiang Kai-shek himself had made the decision, but they were aware that the Japanese were coming. Once the Japanese were had taken the northern part of the province, because Changsha is kind of in the north part, it's not in the due north, but it became knowledge that the, the Japanese were close and panic ensued. And there's like this massive flight of people out of the city, people trying to get on boats, on cars, on trains, and it's just total panic and chaos. And people are trying to get on boats and jumping in the river and some people drowned and people crowding on trains, getting on the rooftops of trains. Even while the city was burning, people were still trying to leave. Um, it was it was just a total humanitarian uh, nightmare. So prior to the setting of this fire, were individuals in the in the province and in the town? I mean, did they align with with the nationalists or politically? Do we have any sense of of how they identified? I mean, I think there were people. There was leader. There were leaders in the city. The provincial governor himself, I think, had uh, met with members of the community and the foreign community because there were there were also a number of prominent Western organizations in the city, like the YMCA, but also the Yale Mission, the Hunan Bible Institute was another one, and some of the Eng- best English language uh, accounts of of the f- memories of the fire come from some of the, Ye- the the American staff of the Yale Hospital. But I also just think that the, this is what I was kind of going to say a second ago is that once this started by started, I think it kind of became a complicated sort of affair of formal and informal actors participating in, in the, in the torching of the city, even though it was ordered by, ordered to be burned by the, by the 
you know, by the army, by the government. And there were, there were a lot of, you know, just everyday citizens, I think, that were panicking and wanting to, because, um, I mean, I don't think they did it out of any kind of like sense of malice or I don't think they wanted to burn their city. But I mean, the, the sheer terror of, of being occupied by a foreign army. And I, the comparison or just the, it just makes me think so much of what's going on right now with Ukraine, not the, not the scorched earth uh, component, but, but just the, 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 re the refugee crisis, the humanitarian crisis that wars create for people. Cause there, there's just a, a a massive amount of panic and flight out of the, out of the city. Um, Let me ask you this. So I know war is awful and certainly I don't think anyone would want to be as you've suggested, right? Nobody wants to be there when an invading force arrives, but how aware were people in Hunan about events that had happened in Nanjing? Oh, I mean, I, I think pretty fully aware. Um, I, I mean, I, I think people were scared of the Japanese for a reason because they had committed they committed these atrocities. They had a, their army had a policy: uh, the three the three alls: kill all, burn all, destroy all. The Nationalist Army, will, at, in times and places, was woefully under equipped to to face the Japanese in in, in open combat. That started to change once once the United States entered the war, not because the United States committed ground troops to China, but because um, the United States uh, committed um, through the Lend-Lease program supplies, weapons, ammunition, trucks, and other equipment to to the nationalist war effort. But part of the nationalist, I think, Chiang Kai-shek's wartime strategy became uh, something called buying space for time. So in that case, he used China's size, enormous size, to its advantage, which involved just a steady retreat into the interior, westward. And the further the Japanese went into the interior, the more they had to expand manpower and resources and time. And so, yeah, I think people in, in the city were fully aware of, of the potential harm that could befall them if, if their city were to, to fall under occupation. And so you think that was what was motivating most of these non-state actors, or do you do you think there were other things at, at play? Yeah, I mean, I, I do I do think fear was probably a big part of it. Fear of being captured, fear of being killed for women, fear of being you know raped or assaulted or whatever. Um, it's real. It's I mean, it's really interesting the legacy of the war because I mean, all the vestiges of the ancient city were kind of destroyed because it's an ancient an ancient city. It's you know, a few thousand years old at least. And a lot of this ancient architecture and places like that and symbols of the ancient culture of the city were destroyed. But if you go up into the hills behind um, the major universities in Changsha, Hunan Normal University and Hunan University, there are graves of uh, of national soldiers that fought uh, fought the Japanese, fought in the war, died in the war. And I've I've seen I've seen some of those graves on hikes up into these hills. Um, so, does the Japanese? I mean, did the Japanese? continue to advance anyway? I mean, what is the result of this, what, strategic decision? Scorched earth policy? Yeah. Um, the ultimate irony was, is that the Japanese, maybe because of the city was burned, uh, that didn't end up uh, taking the city. So I don't know if you can make the case it was all for nothing, or I don't know. As far as I know, they didn't end up occupying the city. How long did it take people to come back? 
Um, well, I think maybe one way I can answer that is, is in, cause people started, once the fire died down and it became clear that the Japanese weren't going to occupy the city, people started coming back. But I also, I would like to speak something about, um, this sort of humanitarian effort to evacuate the city. And one of the more prominent organizations that I, I researched about that was integral to this was the, was, was the local branch of the YMCA. And for your, and for anybody listening, it's, it's, it, you, you kind of need to understand that, um, during this time, YMCAs worldwide weren't, weren't really what you may understand them to be today. Um, they were sort of civic organizations. Uh, so people that are picturing the village people need to disabuse themselves of, of that image. Yeah. And, you know, when I talked about, cause this was a chapter in my dissertation, when I talked about the YMCA that, you know, the song inevitably, uh, when I when I talked about it in my doctoral defense, the song inevitably came up. <laughs> yeah, so you, you kind of need to disabuse yourself of that understanding of the YMCA. It was a civic organization, a Christian organization aimed at young men because men were more susceptible to uh, vice and corruption. So instilling young men with civic values, um, and especially at this time in China's history when it was sort of an emerging nation state, ideas of national uh, national identity, c- civic duty. And part of that civic duty during the, the time of the war was uh, resisting the Japanese, uh, doing everything you could to uh, raise support and instill popular uh, popular pride in, in your country to, to resist the the invading you know force. Um, YMCA's throughout China at this time were also places where uh, injured soldiers could convalesce, get a room, uh, and things like that. When the city of Changsha was bombed, and I'm sure this was the case in many other cities. It was volunteers from the YMCA that would go out into bombed areas and dig people out of the rubble. And uh, the jet when the Japanese bombed cities like Changsha, I mean, they would target major parts of infrastructure like roads and bridges, hospitals, schools, libraries. You know, why why bomb schools and libraries? Because those are centers of national culture and learning. Um, and it doesn't surprise me at all. And you know, again, hearkening back to what's happening in Ukraine now, that that schools have been bombed. It's just such a tragedy that things like that have to happen. In Changsha, you know, these these YMCA volunteers would go into bomb places at their at their own peril and dig people out and hand out medical supplies, drive ambulances, ferry people to the hospitals, um, hand out hot tea and bandages and whatever they needed to do to help people. And they also, the YMCA helped organize an or, an, or, an ordered uh, evacuation of the city through the establishment of various uh, camps. Um, just, again, some things about the Jap- the, the YMCA. Um, there was a dormitory for guests, students, a movie theater. It had a gymnasium. And the audit- they had an auditorium where they would ha- hold these patriotic rallies. And it frequently served as a, a, a venue for, you know, plays, speeches, and other debates featuring local celebrities. Was it targeted? Everything. Yeah, it was burned. Um, it was burned in the fire, but it, I don't know if it was, it was bombed itself, but so the YMCA helped organize uh, something like 30,000 refugees that they had, they helped gather in camps on the outskirts of the city. And each of these camps had captains and sub captains, as well as teams of doctors and nurses accompanying them. Um, they distributed cash to each team. Um, as well as basic supplies like umbrellas and shoes. And so many of the refugees were organized to evacuate to other parts of the province, especially West Hunan. Because if you look on a map, Hunan may not seem that big, but it's you know quite a big place. And so the western part of the province was sort of a more remote area that people fled to. 
Was the government involved at all in trying to help with this humanitarian crisis that they created? I, I mean, in the sense of uh, accepting, because there was an, an enormous amount of um, wartime aid that came from uh, organizations like the, the Red Cross um, and other and other wartime organizations, and they were able to actually raise, you know, several several thousand dollars uh, in, for international aid to the city. Um, I don't think they were, I mean, I don't think they were blind. I don't think Chiang Kai-shek was blind to the the carnage that was caused. I mean, he came back to the city in the days after it and, and, you know, gave a tour of inspection. Um, But things like that, I I don't think did him any favors in winning the hearts and minds of the population. That and the the decision to, you know, break the dikes of the Yellow River. I mean, Chiang Kai-shek's whole wartime strategy, and this is often something that's debated and will continue to be debated, was internal pacification was more important for him. That is, the, the communists were the bigger threat to the country than, than the Japanese were. Um, and so he was trying to fight a war, in a sense, on two fronts. And this goes back to some, something you asked earlier. So, you know, what To what degree were the communists and nationalists allied at this point? Prior to 1936, they hadn't been. And what the communists ended up doing is they kidnapped him um, in the city of Xi'an uh, to sort of force him to form a, uh, a united front against the Japanese. Because Mao who was firmly in control of the party by that time famously said something like, you know, um, we can't even begin to think of communism unless we don't have, unless we have a country in which to practice it. And he's referring to, you know, the fact that the Japanese were the bigger threat. And so you think then that these are things that impacted the political situation after the war? Because communists were able to use it as propaganda against the nationalist government, perhaps? Yeah, Uh, I mean, propaganda, but also just, you know, they say, you know, they say wars are about the winning of hearts and minds. And the communists won popular support and Chiang Kai-shek couldn't because of decisions like that and for, you know, for other reasons. So he didn't do an effective job then of convincing the population that the decisions that he made, albeit destructive, were kind of done in in the best interest of, of the country then. He was not. Per- he did not persuade people that that was the case. Yeah, I would say that's that's a, g- a good estimation. He was not, and he wasn't the most personable man. He was kind of aloof and had a sort of very hierarchical view of things. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily label him a fascist, but there, I think there are sort of. I mean, I think we can find fa- sort of fascist elements uh, in in his style of leadership. But the Nationalist Party was a sort of a Leninist style party. It, you know, believed that a, a, there needed to be a, a ruling vanguard or a rule by committee to, to govern a state. Um, but he disdained communism. He felt that it was an anathema to everything about Chinese, the Chinese way of life and Chinese traditions. I mean, prior to, I mean, the real, the, the, the bad thing for Chiang Kai-shek is that from the time he reunified this, you know, most of the country in 1927 to 1937, this decade was, is referred to as the Nanjing decade because the seat of his government was was located there. There's a, there was a lot of progress made in terms of modernizing reforms and infrastructure and industrialization, reforming the government, creating uh, a national currency, establishing tariff autonomy, uh, eliminating the influence of foreign countries from the you know, the, the port areas. So there's a lot of good things that Chiang Kai-shek's government did, but he, you know, he despised organized labor. He would not cooperate with the communists. I mean, they had to kidnap him 
in order to make that happen. So if we take a, a few steps back then, and because we started in a, in a much broader context, and then we kind of centered in on this one particular episode, we could take some steps back again and try to place this moment, this fire, this destruction in the broader context of the war. What sort of, what sort of lasting impact at all did it have? The effort to, to deal with the Japanese invasion, I guess is, is what we would call it. Um, well, Changsha was one of, I stress one of the first major cities in the world to be totally destroyed, uh, during the war, during World War II or the war of resistance, uh, in China. And to this day, it remains one of the, one of the most significant, uh, events in, in the history of the city, uh, because of the damage it did. I mean, it completely wiped out everything and they had to completely rebuild it. Uh, the whole city from scratch, parts of it, or most of it anyway. But by, by 1941, like I said, the United States started contributing a, a large amount of uh, economic uh, aid to China. You had the uh, the creation of sort of this mercenary air force called the Flying Tigers, which was uh, commanded by a, a Texan named Claire Chennault. Um These are volunteer pilots that fought for nationalist China. Uh, so they did their part. Um, I, I think what often gets ignored in in the popular telling of the war is is the fact that the japanese uh fought uh committed a heavy had a heavy troop commitment in in the mainland of china and so that stretched their forces um because i mean when we think of the war in asia world war ii in asia we tend to think of the united states and the west's war with japan in the pacific and now those were important uh events to be sure definitely bombing of pearl harbor definitely an important event but we need to also remember that Again, going back to your question in terms of the broader context that for people in China, World War II began in the summer of 1937 and lasted until, you know, Japanese, Japan's surrender in 1945. And then it really, it really didn't stop for them because in 1945, the nationalists and communists resumed their civil conflict five. And for four more years, the two, those two factions were at war with one another. The communists win. The People's Republic of China is declared in October of 1949, but then then the Korean War started a few a few um, years later. The Communist Party uh, leadership felt, you know, they had to they were sort of compelled to come to North Korea's defense because um, the you know the the largely American you know ar uh, led army was pretty close to the, the border of China. And they, they felt that was sort of an intolerable, they could not ignore that. So the, Ch the Chinese army entered the war and a lot of Chinese soldiers died fighting, fighting in that war. And so from 1937 to the early 1950s, I mean, the, the country was just in a constant state of warfare. And you're talking about, you know, the, the lasting impact of the nationalists in Chiang Kai-shek. The unfortunate thing, too, is that at least in my understanding, in my telling of the war, I think the nationalist army and government bore a lot of the brunt uh, in the fight against Japan. And they had to go right from that conflict into a conflict with the communists. And I think they were, their forces were stretched thin and exhausted. And I mean, it's no wonder they lost the civil war and that government, the nationalist government fled to Taiwan and established the Republic of China there. And that the remnants of that government still exists in Taiwan to this day and controls the island as a renegade province. So the, the legacy of the war, the long-term impact of the war still is still felt to to the state, North Korea is a, you know, a divided state. Still, uh, North and South Korea are still technically in a state of, in a state of, of war themselves. But I think it's also important to look at 
events like the Changsha Fire, because uh, humanitarian organizations like the YMCA were integral to the humanitarian effort. And I, I've highlighted the work of one superstar uh, couple, married couple, um, that were actually edu- uh, ended up being educated at Yale. Uh, in the United States, uh, Sophie Zhang and her husband um, were the leaders of that YM- that branch of the YMCA were, and were doing a lot of the things that I mentioned in helping raise popular support, holding rallies, distributing supplies, and organize, organizing volunteers to, to dig people out of rubble and evacuate refugees from the city. Very good. I, th- I think it's, it's, a, it's a good reminder. We tend to have a view of World War II that is kind of from one perspective, Really, and it's it's a good it's a good reminder. It's been a while since I've done any deep reading on it, but if memory serves correct, there was competition in Japan between the army and the navy over various dif- politically and yeah. to get government money to fund the different ways in which they wanted to prosecute war. And again, if memory serves correctly, it's it's because the Japanese wound up getting bogged down in China that the Navy was able to persuade the government to support their their desire to do things like, you know, attack British holdings in Asia and bomb Pearl Harbor and yeah. and all of these other things. So what was happening in the interior of China then had very real repercussions for how the war played out overall. And then, of course, you did a magnificent job of laying out the continued legacy post post World War Two that, you know, is very much the geopolitical situation in which we live today. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that we need to remember too is that that we were allies in this cause, uh, the United States and China. We worked together. Um, Madam Chiang Kai shek, who I didn't mention, was a pivotal figure during this time because um, I mentioned that Chiang Kai shek was sort of aloof and unpersonal, but his wife was the exact opposite. She was fluent in English. She was Western educated. Uh, she went to school at Wellesley. Uh, she was a Methodist. She was a snazzy dresser. Yeah. And she was sort of a, a very loquacious, very talkative uh, sort of speaker, and she served as his translator in, in, in a lot of dipl- in a lot of capacities, you know. And she came to the United States uh, famously, and, and stayed with the Roosevelts, and and was this, uh, one of the first women to speak before the U.S. Congress um, to, to raise uh, support for the war uh, in China. So I, I think it's you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, it is important to remember that we're we were allies in a common cause. Uh, especially with the way things are today, there there's tends to be so much focus on you know our competition and our differences and things like that. I mean, there's a there's a really good popular book that I've taught before about about this idea. It's called Forgotten Ally by Ron Emitter, and I, I think one of the purposes of that book is again uh, to to remind a popular audience, you know, of of uh, the cost of the war in Asia and what what the war in Asia was and. I think that's kind of what our, you know, obviously that's our job as historians is to remind the public, you know, we're, we're professional reminders <clears throat> in that sense. I don't know who said that, but. Uh, to steal that. That's really great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. I think it's, it might be from Eric Hobswam maybe, but um, that the war was a global war that it was fought on many fronts by many different people, not just the United States, not just in Europe or the Pacific islands. Um, it was fought in China. It was fought on the Eastern Front. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Hudson, before we close out, is there anything else, any kind of final thoughts that you want to leave with us about this fire, the significance of it, um, what it meant for for the city and the, and the province? Just any final thoughts you want to leave us with? 
I think what some of what I've already stated, just the the humanitarian the the humanitarian sort of aspects uh, and impact of of wars, because that's that's sort of how I teach wars. I think that's how wars should be taught, and at least in a component of courses or classes on war should be should focus on that. Should focus on how war impacts civilians, because I think in much of the popular literature and movies and documentaries about war, it's all about the battles. It's all about the generals. It's all about the soldiers and, you know, soldiers who fight in wars, uh, you know, have done amazing things for their country. And I'm speaking with respect to, you know, members of our own armed forces in our own country that have, have served and fought abroad. You know, I honor their, their commitment, their sacrifice, but there's, there's other stories to be told, you know? And again, if you're keeping track of what's happening in Ukraine right now, I mean, it's a massive humanitarian crisis. Two million people have fled the country. Um, if you look at every war in China's history prior to World War II, the major war of the, of the 19th century, the Taiping Rebellion, uh, massive humanitarian uh, crisis for the whole country. Um, World War II as well. Uh, but I, I think it speaks to the you know the credibility of of, of the people of Hunan, of, of local people there that that, you know, organized to, to help other people in, in this, these times of crisis, ordinary people, people without guns, just people that were volunteering with their time and their effort and their patriotism because they love their country. So I think those stories need to be told too. And so when I teach my classes and teach about, uh, you know, some of the major wars that have been fought in China, I tend to focus on the human impact, you know, the humanitarian impact, uh, crisis that, that, that are often caused. Very good. Well, Dr. Hudson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to speak with us about this particular moment in the history of China. Thank you so much, Dr. Mize. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please join us next time when we will explore a 1934 assassination in Soviet Russia. Speak with you soon.